Welcome back, and thanks for joining us on the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm Tyler Austin, your host and bookseller here at Skylight. Um, today, I'm going to be joined by Cliff Nesterhoff, who is a several times published author with great books, uh, including The Comedians. We had a bit of a real estate problem. One of the most controversial blogs amongst old comedians that ever existed, uh, as he's been called the king of comedy lore. And I just want to say, uh, you know, thanks so much for joining us, Cliff, and we appreciate having you here today. My pleasure. And we're talking about your new book, uh, Outrageous. Yeah. Uh, which is about, you know, I guess generally political correctness, the culture wars, uh, and, and how it intersects with showbiz over the course of basically the entire history of showbiz? Well, essentially the premise is that for the past several years, we have all been told over and over and over that you can't say anything anymore, you can't joke about anything more, anymore, comedy's under fire, end of free speech. And my argument, based on uh, thousands of examples and evidence-based research throughout history, is exactly the opposite, that there's more free speech today than at any other point in the history of American comedy. So that's the crux of the book. And if you're skeptical of that uh, argument, the book is chock full of examples demonstrating that to be true. Yeah. I, so I guess uh, my first thought was, obviously, this book feels incredibly timely. Um, but you kind of read the book and you go, I guess you could have written this book at any time in the, the past 150 years. And, you know, people saying that they can't say anything anymore would have been applicable. Mm -hmm. uh, but so as that has heated up over the last three, four five years, as the Internet has kind of gotten into a fever pitch over it. Was there a particular moment that made you go, I need to look into this and see, is this actually true? Or was it just sort of a general buildup? Of well, I always knew it wasn't true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's so obvious to me that that isn't true. When you consider what is permissible on modern cable television, streaming services, satellite radio, uh, uh, the stage, podcasts, the internet, compared to as recently as 2004... Let's go back. Do you remember Janet Jackson's nipple and the hysteria <laughs> around well, actually, a half yeah. second glimpse of half a nipple? Most people watching that Super Bowl halftime show with Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson when her nipple was uh, very briefly exposed, I don't think anybody actually saw her nipple. Like it was so fast, you would not have really noticed or realized, but it became an evangelical hysteria for an entire year, it was debated. It was the focus of think uh, pieces and a, a campaign against uh, immoral, immoral Hollywood. It upended Janet Jackson's career and ultimately led to a half million dollar fine imposed by the FCC, a fine the FCC would not have imposed if not for this uh, evangelical lobby fever pitch saying this is the downfall of America. This is so obscene. Okay, 2004, not that long ago, half a nipple today we can look at the most vile pornography through our internet provider at home no controversy you can watch a show like the righteous gemstones or euphoria on hbo the opening scene of uh, of, uh episodes in both of those programs uh, different episodes uh, you can see people's dicks waving through the air not controversial no debate no campaign uh, Pete Davidson has a sitcom on uh, NBC Peacock. I watched the first episode not that long ago. I was disgusted by it. The opening <laughs> scene is uh, 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 Pete Davidson jerking off and he comes on his mother. That's the opening scene. Okay, compare this to 20 years ago, Janet Jackson's half a second of a nipple and the hysteria. The comparison between what you could and could, could not do then to now it's, uh, it's remarkable. That's just 2004. Right. Now if we go back to the first half of the 20th century and look at what the taboos were in comedy, you couldn't joke about politics, not with any uh, pointed commentary about specific policies. You couldn't uh, uh, ridicule uh, religion without it becoming a huge hysteria or completely censored. Uh, you couldn't swear on stage without threat of being arrested. And certainly you couldn't do... Uh, expressions of sexuality like Nikki Glaser does today. Um, Lenny Bruce is a famous example of the persecuted comedian, the arrested comedian, and he was arrested for a, dump, uh, a number of different reasons at different times, sometimes uh, drug use, which had nothing to do with his act, sometimes criticism of religion, sometimes cussing. 
1962, Lenny Bruce was arrested in liberal Hollywood in the parking lot of uh, the Crescendo nightclub, not far from where the comedy store is today, uh, by the Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's Department. He was arrested, handcuffed, booked, fingerprinted, mugshotted for saying the word schmuck on stage, 1962. So the idea that you can't joke about anything anymore, you can't say anything anymore, there's no more free speech, is a, a ridiculous argument compared to uh, what you could and could not say through most of the 20th century. And even to this day, the restrictions on something like Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, you still can't say fuck. Nikki Glaser still couldn't do her actual nightclub act on that show. The difference between cable today and streaming today compared to the rules and regulations of ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox could not be more drastic. And frankly, it's uh, archaic, those restrictions. Nobody cares yeah. if you swear anymore. Um, so anyways, I have thousands of examples in the new book and thousands more that were cut out to uh, avoid making it completely redundant. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, but you can say so much more in comedy and in society, period, today than you could as recently as 2004 in the Janet Jackson nipple era. It's it's uh, there were several things in there that I mean, the arrests that you talk about. I mean, Lenny Bruce is the famous example. Everyone, you know, mm -hmm. as, as sort of a bastion of free speech. But it was incredible to me in the book. I mean, having not really heard how much longer that continued again, someone like Cheech and Chong were arrested in Tampa in 1975 and were booked. And, you know, these, so those arrests continued and more and more guys were, you know, and, and women, Joan Rivers, uh, you know, was threatened with a bomb <clears> and, <throat> as late as the set, you know. So it's it was just kind of incredible to see that that continued on for another decade. Well, one of the other reasons I knew that this argument was bullshit is I used to do stand-up and it was before Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, before the word podcast existed. And uh, I was punched three different times, <laughs> and I had a picture of beer poured over my head in Vancouver, and in a completely different incident, I had a picture of beer poured over my head in Toronto. And it had to do with, one, you're dealing with unruly drunks. Two, I was an insult comedian, so it uh, can be taken the wrong way. But when somebody rushed the stage, when Dave Chappelle was performing at the Hollywood Bowl, I saw Howie Mandel uh, forecast that it was the end of comedy. Like, this seems like a rather drastic thing. And um, the propaganda that we've seen in the past few years, if you can't joke about anything anymore, has mostly come from people outside of comedy, mostly from political players and editorial commentators. But it has really affected um, the perceptions of comedians themselves. So somebody like Bill Maher, who should know better, somebody like Howie Mandel, who should know better, I'm sure they have instances throughout their career, especially their early career as touring comedians, in which they dealt with an unruly audience or somebody sabotaging the show or somebody uh, uh, trying to prevent them from doing something. Certainly they both have signed contracts over the course of their careers to do what we call a corporate gig in stand-up, mm -hmm. which is a private gig where you're paid a ton of money to do a certain amount of time, but you sign a contract that will say things like, don't make fun of the boss, don't mention the company, don't swear, don't do graphic sexuality, don't get into politics, don't get into religion. And comedians have always signed those contracts because you get 10 grand for doing yeah. 20 minutes of work. Um, so those types of restrictions have always um, uh, occurred in certain situations and it still occurs and you do a college campus, same thing, you have to sign this contract that you will or will not do a certain amount of thing. Even on a very innocuous level, you have to adhere to a specific amount of time. You have to do 20 minutes, not 25 minutes, not 15 minutes in order to ensure your, um, your payment. If you want to appear on late night television, you work with a segment producer who says, no, take that out. Uh, yeah, let's go with this, but change that word. And comedians say, sure. They don't scream freedom of speech, cancel culture. You know, it's just part of the game but this propaganda that we've been exposed to the past several years has affected people like howie mandel now to the effect that they'll say things like this is the end of comedy which is really you know it's almost behind the scenes a lot of this idea that free speech is being suppressed comes from um right-wing think tanks it comes from evangelical forces and then this idea that the end is nigh is like a evangelical cliche 
And now it has affected people who are not part of that sphere just because it's repeated over and over so frequently. So you can have somebody like Howie Mandel saying something like, this is the end of comedy, which is really um, something that you would expect somebody like Pat Robertson to say. <laughs> not about comedy, but like, this is the end times, the end is near, the the rapture is coming. And it's it never occurs. Comedy has not died. It has continued to flourish and most of the people who uh, supposedly have been silenced have not been silenced. And uh, that's not to say that uh, censorship doesn't still exist. It does. Like I s said, the Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show example, you have to censor your own act uh, and work with a segment producer, and willingly so, in order to do The Tonight Show. And that has always been the case. And I'm not even saying that that is... Uh, right i'm just saying that that is uh yeah. something that has parameters all that along. have always existed yeah, in yeah. in the history of comedy yeah, i don't think those perimeters yeah. should exist it seems archaic to me that abc cbs nbc would still not permit you to say fuck or shit or or whatever when you can hear it in every single other medium it makes <laughs> no sense mainstream programming that Pete Davidson sitcom example I gave, completely revolting to me. <laughs> but it's on the NBC streaming service, Comcast. Was that the network that broadcast the Janet Jackson Nipplegate? I can't recall. I, I don't know if it was ABC or NBC, but it just seems so old-fashioned to uh, retain those restrictions, but they do. And I think comics in general uh, are willing to take on a sort of... Um victimhood if they can if they can wrap their arms around it <laughs> well the irony is that a lot of comedians these days like to um lay claim to being a truth teller yeah philosopher kings well yeah. you're not a very good truth teller or philosopher if you're getting duped by lies yeah. Yeah. you should be able to expose the lies for what they are and so it's sad to me to see um otherwise intelligent people easily manipulated but the internet and social media is such an effective a manipulator if something is repeated over and over and over and over all day all day all day and the repeaters have the resources to keep doing that financially um eventually it does have an effect and people start to believe uh nonsense and and certainly the the general public believes it you know when comedians are interviewed on morning radio there's always the same list of cliches that they ask like have you always been a fun were you always a funny kid were you the class clown where do you get your ideas from and now there's a new one added to the list it was like boy this cancel culture you can't say anything anymore huh and it's because those questioners are affected by the repetition of that talking point yeah but that talking point uh, for the past several years has been picked up by political commentators who have no relation to comedy whatsoever and so part of the purpose of writing this book is to counteract that i find it disturbing when um the, the i hate to use the word narrative it's such a cliche these days but the narrative of you can't say anything anymore or you can't joke about anything anymore has largely been controlled and driven by people outside of comedy yeah and now it has affected the thinking of people within comedy and I would like to uh, correct that. Well, and, and that's something I think you kind of paint that picture in the way that it changed it because because people saying you can't say anything anymore as you document goes literally back to the very origins of show business when people first started being like, maybe blackface is bad. And people were going, but then how am I supposed to make a living? I can't tell jokes yes. anymore. And then that continues on and it, it happened with Irish jokes and it happened with Italian jokes, it happened with Jewish jokes. Yes. And you just kind of keep showing that cycle over and over again, which is totally appropriate that, that these people would say, you know, these are wrong, hurtful stereotypes that shouldn't be perpetuated. And of course, comics go, well, what are we supposed to do? How am I supposed to get laughs? Yeah. And then that has been now weaponized, that idea of, you know, I can't get laughs. These people can't get laughs. They're, they're, they can't say anything anymore. And it's become, like you say, this sort of firebrand political point by, by out, taken up by outside forces. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes some of it is contrived. You know, there are um, comedians who are intentional provocateurs on, in a, on an apolitical standpoint. There was Andy Kaufman. Mm -hmm. And for him, it wasn't necessarily about getting a laugh. It was like getting a reaction, yeah. right? And you still see that today, but now it's a little bit more political. So people will bait the audience either with using a slur or saying something that is sort of taboo. But without the joke, without the comedy, they'll just say the taboo and the audience will go, oh. And then the provocateur on stage will go, what? What? We are too sensitive? And it's like, but you wanted that reaction. It's yeah. designed to get that reaction. 
And there's nothing worse than bombing in silence. So <laughs> if you can't get big laughs, sometimes any reaction will do. And sometimes it's fun to get a reaction from an audience uh, among the laughter that is something different. But there are uh, um, a school of comics who provoke for the sake of provoke, provocateur for the sake of provocateur, and uh, then act indignant when they succeed at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's sort of weird. But ultimately, the people with the most natural ability um, don't have much difficulty navigating uh, being funny because it's instinctual you know it's really not about coming up with oh uh, what could i say that you're not supposed to say or what could i even uh, uh you know social commentary what could i say that's going to be philosophical or profound a com comedian don't doesn't think like that they think in terms of uh i think this is funny let's try it on stage if it gets a laugh we'll keep it and if it doesn't work we'll try and adjust it. if it still doesn't work we'll throw it out you know most comedy is derived by a funny per person through instinct. And I think sometimes people who aren't funny just can't grasp that. That's why they're so fascinated with it. Like, where do you get your material from? Where do you get your ideas? And it's like, you don't intentionally find your ideas. It's when you're a gifted, naturally, organically funny person, you just see the world that way. You learn pretty early on that when you open your mouth and you're in a room with a crowd of people, for some reason, they laugh more often than not. And other people just that don't have that knack and they can never make that room laugh, even um, no matter how hard they try. So most people who have that natural gift, it's an instinct. It's not a, um, uh, it's not a contrived construct. But sometimes the provocateur comedian does not have that natural gift. So any reaction will do. Boy, I mean, is there anything at this point watching stand-up comedy that, that makes me want to tune out less than the person starting their joke by saying, oh, you just can't say anything anymore, but I'm going to go there. Well, yeah. you know, in, I think it was 2015, maybe, when Dave Chappelle did his first uh, Netflix special, mm. they released a trailer. I got to find it because I haven't looked at it since it came out. But I remember thinking this, and this was before all the Chappelle controversies and whatnot. It was supposed to be like his comeback special because he was kind of like a um, uh, in the unicorn mode where there was rumors, oh, Dave Chappelle was here last night, but he wasn't everywhere yet again. He had been, and then he disappeared, and then this was sort of his comeback. And Netflix released a trailer, and it was Dave Chappelle with a microphone like trekking through Death Valley or something. He was in the desolate desert. And the trailer said he's going to say the things you're not supposed to say. Now, this was before all that transgendered controversy um, that followed him around. And so it was marketed that way right. ahead of time, before anybody had saw it, before anybody had determined he was saying something you can't say, it was marketed that way. And so part of it is a, a real contrivance. You know, I'm going to say what you can't say. Well, doesn't that contradict itself? <laughs> if you can't say it, how is it that you're saying it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're on a stage with a microphone being amplified over a crowd of people. It's sort of an put onto Netflix. It's yeah. sort of an insult <laughs> to the comedians that did suffer in the past. Yes. Lots of comedians were arrested. Mae West spent ten days in a prison workhouse for doing a, uh, a show called Sex on Broadway, a comedy that she wrote. Lenny Bruce, of course. George Carlin was arrested in 1972. Richard Pryor was arrested in 1974. Um, many, many marginal comedians you've never heard of were arrested. There was a guy named Hoppy Hopkins who uh, mostly did lounges in Hawaii. He was arrested doing a show in Anaheim, I think in 65 or 66. It was a citizen's arrest. <laughs> Somebody came out of the audience and pinned him down and held him until the police arrived. And then they did arrest him because he said fuck on stage. And I think that was in 66. So it's an insult to those comedians who had to go through it to claim that you're going through that today when you're not, you know. When when essentially it's it's the same thing that's been happening again, like we like you've said and pointed out in the people book. People will often get mad at comedians. I'm not saying that there aren't people <laughs> who often are irrational in their grievance. Also, I would never lump every grievance together. You got to see what people are saying on a case by case basis. Maybe somebody has a good point. Maybe they're being a total lunatic. You know, uh, it depends on the situation. But that has always been true. You yeah. know, so there's many examples in the book of people writing letters to the editor complaining about things like the immorality of I Love Lucy, uh, I Love Lucy or the immorality 
of uh, I love Lucy loosely that I, love, I feel like I it should Lucy. be a, that should be a parody <laughs> pornographic parody um, or the Carol Burnett show or SNL or all in the family you know um, unfortunately because of editing and the way the publishing world works and constructing a book uh, I wasn't able to include as many examples as I wanted because my editor felt it was becoming redundant he goes you don't need 20 letters trashing Carol Burnett in 1971 <laughs> just go with one or two um, so if anybody reads the book and feels like it's cherry picking I got thousands of more examples they put most of them on the internet um, of people writing letters to the editor complaining about what today we, we would consider very innocuous comedy yeah. saying that it was immoral that it was disgusting that it was leading to the downfall of America um, and then comedians in response saying, hey, you can't joke about anything anymore. People are too sensitive these days, so on and so forth. The same arguments, the same attitudes, but before the Internet. And in those days, if you wrote a letter to the editor, there was an editor who chose or declined to publish them. Whereas now with social media, there is no editor. So every uh, quote unquote letter to the editor is automatically published. So to me, it creates an illusion that there's greater hysteria, that more people are irrational or sensitive than in the past, and that's what we're told. But based on the sampling of letters to the editor and, 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 and grievances of the past, it seems to be pretty much the same. It's just before it was filtered and now it is not. And it's, like you say, the most innocuous stuff, though the example you have in the book of I Love Lucy is that they dare to show her be a pregnant woman mm -hmm. in the world, yeah. as if that's not a thing that it was existing and people interacted with on a, could be on a near daily basis. The idea of seeing a pregnant woman on television was offensive. Yes. Uh, and I will say those letters, I mean, boy, it would make, it could make current Twitter users blush. I mean, people are using the most offensive, horrifying sort of language to get their point across. And, and they were printed in the newspaper. I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible in terms of just that, the vitriol that was being spilled. And, and I think we do as uh, people want to flatten the past, right? You want to just be like, things were different back then. They were better. They were easier. This was, you know, this was normally accepted as, as reality. And here we are 50 years later and we're living in crazier times. Yeah, and the, the yeah. example, I, I just love this example so much because it, it hit so close to home was the Richard Dawson on Family Feud. Because mm -hmm. that was, we'd watch those reruns as, as a family and my parents would just go, look at him. He's kissing all these women. It's hilarious. And that's just what times were back then. Not realizing that there was a letter campaign that he was possibly spreading like, uh, or herpes orally yeah. and then it led to magnifying glass inspections of contestants because also they were going to say Richard stop kissing these women they were like we're going to have to magnifying glass check every contestant before he kisses you yeah. so, it was a, so no matter what no matter what it was no matter how silly it seems how long ago it was there were people at the time going this is wrong right we shouldn't let this happen or there's, there's problems here uh, it just, we like to flatten that stuff out and say, oh, it was fine. It just happened. We were okay with it and it was no big deal. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that attitude that you're describing is if you go to YouTube and watch clips of like older comedy and then look at the comment section. Yeah. So if it's Eddie Murphy or Sam Kinison or Andrew Dice Clay, it'll say things like, ah, oh, back when nobody complained <laughs> or you wouldn't be able to get away with this today. And I have a section in the book that combines those three, Eddie Murphy, Sam Kinison, and Andrew Dice Clay, because their respective controversies in the 80s were very similar. Now, you could argue that those three probably were the three biggest stand-up comedians of the 1980s. Eddie Murphy was a huge act, incredibly profitable. So was Sam Kinison. So was Dice Clay. They played rock venues, stadiums, um, won Grammys. All three of them, at the height of their stand-up careers, were subjected to protest campaigns because they used uh, gay slurs in some instances with Sam Kinison, who was, uh, and Dice Clay. They were protested by uh, feminist groups and whatnot. Um, Eddie Murphy primarily protested by gay groups and AIDS uh, health advocates. Mm -hmm. And the number of protests protests that they were subjected to was substantial it didn't affect their success or their acts any more than uh transgendered movement affects dave chappelle's success or act it doesn't affect it really at all it maybe makes some people more aware of those grievances but eddie murphy was subjected to protests throughout america when he toured because he was using 
various slurs. And so was Andrew Dice Clay, and so was Sam Kinison. They would play Minnesota, there would be pickets out front. They'd play Vancouver, there'd be pickets out front. There would be people saying to the venue, cancel this show. Um, they survived that, you know, it didn't really affect their success. But those protests existed, just as they often exist uh, today. So it was not particularly different. It's just people either chose to ignore it or people are too young to have known about it. Certainly, when you hear in the media you can't joke about anything anymore, nobody points to those examples. Yeah. Except for me. Nobody <laughs> wants to fucking hear it. But So the, the, the similarities are, are striking sometimes. Yeah. And that kind of, hopefully, is what makes this book fun. You know, it, I try not to hit people over the head with it, but of course you're supposed to read this book and go, huh, that reminds me of something that happened last week, or that's like something that somebody would say today. And it is, of course. Yeah. There was a particular example that I found that I thought was, like, felt eerily similar was, uh, it, he, to a smaller degree, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Myron Fagan, who oh, was yeah. the failed playwright. He, he wrote an anti-communist sort of play that was panned by critics. Yeah. And then he becomes an incredibly vocal critic and, and, and hate mail writer and, and sort of a pamphlet writer for uh, these sort of organizations that were uh, fighting against Hollywood and, and their involvement. Specifically, I, it was Steve Allen in, yeah. uh, involved in trying to, uh, you know, that little old thing of, you know, fighting off nuclear armament, you know, yeah. and uh, how dare he? But, you know, all these things were thrown around. As it, it, the, the common refrain if throughout all of that, the last century seems to be communism. It's all, it w and it continues to this yeah. day. Yeah. Um, but I found that to be so interesting that this guy who, you know, took his shot at showbiz uh, as a playwright or wanted to continue on and had his personal beliefs kind of gets bounced from the industry and you know if you were around today I, I feel like he might start a podcast and move to austin texas is kind of the uh, the sort of parallel i drew there but yeah i mean i i wasn't thinking that parallel myself but yeah he, he i mean my myron fagan was really aggressive and he was a guy who hated the civil rights movement and i don't know that his pamphlets use the n-word but it did use the word mongrel a lot in referring to civil rights uh, advocates and his pamphlets were stocked by John Birch Society bookstores which were extreme maybe slightly extreme than him but yeah Myron Fagan is a, is a weird dude there's a whole FBI file on him that you can read on archive.org that goes into some of his other um, behaviors and he lasted for generations and he was you know a podcast is DIY and in those days, bigots, their sort of DIY style was uh, pamphlets. They would self-publish. And, and even today, I ordered for research some of those Myron C. Fagan uh, pamphlets. And they showed up. I've got them off Amazon. They were $5 a pop. And they were like reprints. They were brand new. And I looked at the, uh, the, like the address where they came from, and it said like, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like Thunderbolt Press, Boise, Idaho. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and, and I looked it up and it was, it's like a fucking white supremacist, like militia imprint that's reprinting all the Myron C. Fig. So I felt guilty that I was ordering them, but uh, I needed them for research, you know, and it's him complaining about Myrna Loy being a commie and Gregory Peck is a, is a commie conspirator and all this stuff. But, um, yeah, that, that DIY sort of underground was uh, real prevalent in, in those days. Going back to the 30s, there were all these anti-FDR uh, pamphlets and tying him to, like, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion type conspiracy. The Rothschilds put him in there and that type of stuff. And uh, it, it, it's always sort of been underground, but it's certainly gotten more and more mainstream. But even in those days, somebody like Henry Ford... You know, you yeah. could compare to somebody like Elon Musk, this extremely powerful, wealthy, successful industrialist, but also pushing these crazy, like, anti-Semitic things and, like... There's all kinds of parallels, of course. Oh, there's there's so many throughout the book. I, I mean, the one of the things that, I, as I read, and because and you, you mentioned, obviously, there's thousands of examples that you just couldn't fit into this book uh, on, you know, again, f for the basis of it becoming redundant. But, I mean, as you research this stuff, did you just... 
I mean, how do you not lose your mind? How do you not go just to be to see what the narrative is today or what people are saying today? It's the exact opposite. Yeah. It, it almost is calming in a way. Okay, that's good. Okay. Because people feel like the world is ending. There's all these horrible things happening. Right. Of course, there are horrible things happening. But if you had a Twitter and an iPhone in 1939 and we're scrolling through it and you're like, oh my God, what's happening in Germany? Oh my God, what's happening in Poland? Look what's happening with Joseph Stalin. Oh my fucking God. Jim Crow lynching. Uh, oh, they they, they want to fucking, you know, like it's just, you would be uh, immobilized and crippled with, with, yeah. uh, with fear and agony about the state of the world. And some people were, you know, my next door neighbor today mm. is 98 years old and she moved to Hollywood in 1942 she wasn't born in 42 she, she moved, moved here in 42 <laughs> and i was asking her i said, oh, you so when you moved she told me a little bit about her life she was an actress and and i said you know you said that when you moved to town you worked at the thrifty drugstore on hollywood boulevard she goes yeah i hated that job i go well what was hollywood boulevard like in 42 you know and i expected the answer to be well it was very glamorous it was the golden age of hollywood hollywood boulevard you know, now we think of it as sordid and run down and gross. And uh, she goes, oh, it was awful. I go, why was it awful? She goes, well, I was working in the drugstore and uh, all these women with sores all over their legs would come in and with forged prescriptions trying to get opiates. And like, I go, wait, in 1942? She goes, yes, it was the wartime. Everybody was crazy, which you don't think of yeah. as being the case. But because of the state of the world, the Holocaust, people fighting overseas, people's husbands being killed uh, or being crippled or injured or whatever, or just general uh, world anxiety. Um, a lot of people resorted to drugs. And so she was saying that Hollywood Boulevard was just populated with, with drug addicts and it was scary for her to walk home in 1942. So again, the parallels between the past and the present are much closer than people understand. And a lot of what we know about history, or what we think we know about history, is based on the viewing of old TV shows, based on the viewing of old movies. I mean, look how, how, look how polite people were. Look how well-dressed they were. But that's on the MGM Studios backlog. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. <laughs> reality was not portrayed, really. Yes. You didn't yeah. see, with uh, a couple of minor exceptions, Jim Crow uh, portrayed on the screen. You didn't see lynchings on the screen. Even when you did in a movie like The Oxbow Incident mm -hmm. or Fritz Lang's Fury with Spencer Tracy, they made all the characters white, you know. And um, I talk in the book about some Rod Serling scripts that he wrote about Emmett Till and other sort of racist incidences and how the sponsors forced him to change all the characters to white. If it took place in the Deep South, it had to be moved to the North, you know. Um, reality was purged and sanitized throughout much of show business history. So I think it is, as much as I love old movies and old TV shows, it has distorted our perceptions of what history was like, I think. Absolutely. I mean, in that, and I think that's what the book does such a good job of is, is obviously showing that, again, these, these things were always out there, that people were always out yeah, there. To, to yeah. answer your question, no, it doesn't uh, uh, devastate or cripple me like <laughs> as I look at all these horrible things. It's almost uh, reassuring that the end times are not necessarily nigh, yeah. as we are constantly told. And there's quotes in the book from people like Billy James Hargis, who was a far-right Baptist preacher saying that the communists are going to take control of America by 1972. It's not even a question anymore. Uh, the civil rights movement is a communist conspiracy. It's the road to tyranny. You know, you got to be skeptical of people that are consistently invoking the words freedom, liberty, or tyranny, <laughs> because most often they're tyrants opposed to other people's freedom and liberty. Yes. <laughs> and, and I love that. I mean, just again, you, you have over and over again, these examples of these preachers, these people who kind of raise themselves up to be the arbiters of what is mm -hmm. good or bad. And they make these predictions. I was, there was one in particular, I can't remember who exactly had said it, but it was, you know, by, by, you know, allowing this on TV right now, in eight years, we will have pornographic uh, material pornography. pornography on television yes. in 19 in by 1980 and you're yeah. just like that's what a specific yeah. prediction yes. eight years i was like how did he do it how would he know in eight years and there used to be a detroit preacher passed away now lived forever named jack van impey 
I don't know if you ever saw him on TV. You might recognize him. He had, a, he had this white hair. He didn't have a congregation. He sat at a desk, and he had a wife with a real high-pitched voice, and they would do pro- prophecy. They would go through the, the daily news and say, see, the Bible predicted that this was going to happen. This gonna happen. Every week they would do this. For, but he has a great sermon that got sampled, uh, I think, by Bob Seger and some other rock musicians, and it was like that. It was it's from the late, late uh, 60s, and he said something like, I, I had it to memory because... I used to put it in between songs on mixtapes when I was a kid. <laughs> but he said something like, uh, 1973 is the year that they're now planning for sex in the streets in every major city from coast to coast. And get ready for a shock. The music that they're planning to use to crumble the morals of America is this rotten, filthy, dirt, lewd, lascivious junk called rock and roll. I preached in my conversion how how 40 million women had illegitimate babies. They said, not just the lyrics, the beat. The fertility beat of the jungle is wrapped up in this modern rock. So throw away your Herman's Hermits. Throw away your Beatles. <laughs> he goes on, but I mean, uh, 1973 apparently was the year that there would be sex in the streets because of Herman's Hermits and other... Uh, I mean, oh, I mean, who's going to lead you there but Herman's Hermits? Yes, I mean, if anybody yes, is yes. going to do it. Filthy. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, that kind of stuff is fun. It's also yeah. entertaining. You know, it's a lunacy, but you can't help but ridicule it. So I think a lot of the propaganda today is very effective, and unfortunately it affects a lot of comedians who buy into it. But really, the purpose of the comedian in this climate should be to ridicule that. You know, ridicule the nonsense, ridicule the fire and brimstone, ridicule people who say they have no freedom of speech, ridicule people who say the end times are near, you know, instead of buying into it. But uh, repetition is such a effective propaganda tool. And when uh, think tanks or corporations or whoever, political players, people uh, who have benefited from things like the Citizens United uh, ruling have unlimited money to, to, to spend, you can um, send out propaganda relentlessly on a conveyor belt and never run out of resources to do so. And so inevitably it affects both stupid people and smart people. Anybody can be manipulated by propaganda, um, especially if you are exposed to it often enough. So, but I really feel like that's the type of shit that people should be ridiculing. I kind of missed the days of Mad Magazine when everything was punctured. I don't see uh, that many comedians making fun of Dave Chappelle, Mm -hmm. but he's a huge celebrity, a huge star. You would think that everybody would be mocking the most popular person, which is what has traditionally um, uh, comedy has done. SCTV, when it became popular in the 70s, would make fun of all the icons of comedy. They would mercilessly ridicule people like Bob Hope, even Woody Allen and George Carlin, who were closer in age to the SCTV cast, um, got really uh, raked over the coals and roasted by them. And Saturday Night Live, when it first started, they would ridicule the old guard of comedians. Like uh, uh, I saw a funny sketch not long ago from the 70s, uh, segment on Weekend Update where Bill Murray interviews Lucille Ball and Gary Morton, and they're played by Gilda Radner and uh, and uh, Alan Zweibel, the writer. And uh, Gary Morton, who was Lucille Ball's husband in the 70s, everybody joked that he was just like, uh, the only reason anybody knew who he was was because he married <laughs> Lucille Ball. So in this fake interview, it's Gilda Radner as Lucy, and she's got a voice like this. And I, I am so happy with Gary now. He's the love of my life. Along with my two talentless children, we have a wonderful life. And Gary Morton, played by Alan Zweibel, doesn't say anything. He just smiles and nods through <laughs> the whole thing. You know, and they're both still alive, and it's sort of this vicious roasting of Lucy and Desi. But when you're that famous, you know, you're a natural target. I just don't see too many comedians this day, today uh, roasting Dave Chappelle or roasting Joe Rogan. I think they want to be on Chappelle's tour. They want to be on Rogan's podcast and maybe, um, you know, are... are, are too timid to ridicule the people who ridicule everything else ah you can't joke about anything anymore i'm gonna go after these alphabet people but they never go after uh somebody as huge and famous and popular as joe rogan or huge and famous and popular as dave Chappelle. the way that you know the early sctv would have or the early mad magazine would have and i kind of uh miss that i really this is tangential but i really enjoy 
comedy about comedy. Yeah. When Gilbert Gottfried would do his impression of elderly Groucho Marx, it was so fucking funny to me. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't mean he didn't love Groucho, but he saw some, how ridiculous those old elderly Groucho appearances were and sycophants like Dick Cavett would never criticize them, but they were like these pedantic, boring, like ponderous interviews that didn't include this great wit that we had been um, uh, conditioned to expect. I I think that's, you definitely obviously cover this in the book as well, that there's a point where every comic, it seems to be, uh, seems to reach this like elder statesman, you know, the Bob Hopes or Mm -hmm. uh, people who, again, Bob Hope, who you say in the thirties and forties was, was cutting edge for being, you know, sort of even daring to go after politics at all or you know and then by the 90s he's just you know he's so or even the 80s is so out of touch well the paradigm shift with bob hope happened in the late 60s oh well yes yeah. so that new generation of college students uh equated him with the vietnam war so he was rejected out of hand the same way that uh, transgendered advocates or allies of that movement might reject dave Chappelle simply because of this connection to uh politics or a point of view that is anathema to them you know so the late 60s is when bob hope suddenly split his uh his uh uh, audience 50 percent in favor 50 percent opposed the young people were opposed the old people who grew up with him still stood by him yeah and the young people gravitated to new younger voices that reflected their sensibility so sensibility um, so like a George Carlin or a Cheech and Chong or a Lily Tomlin or a Richard Pryor or a Robert Klein, young college students gravitated towards those people. And a lot of the things that you hear today, a lot of the hysteria around college campuses and free speech, blah, 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 blah. Young people usually gravitate towards comic voices that are also young. Right. They can relate to them. They reflect their experience. Jerry Seinfeld is 65 years old. Hard to believe he doesn't look 65 or seem 65, but he's a senior citizen. So if he feels that there's a Paul when he plays a college campus, like a resistance, which he has said, maybe it has to do with that age factor. You know, you're no longer the young hip guy, which is very difficult for any of us to accept as we get old to realize yes. <laughs> oh we're out of touch that we don't know the cool places to what go what the young people are saying yes yeah yeah we don't understand the slang we never heard of this band and in the olden days you knew everything and now you know nothing and it's hard to grapple with and it happens to everybody but when you're super famous it's almost tragic to to see it happen in real time uh, no pun intended, Bill Maher. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you kind of talk about this, again, the propaganda that's being put out, again, mm-hmm. that, that is now being taken in by comics and sort of used. But you kind of get to the origins of that, or at least at what I would, I, you know, obviously it was happening before, but it seems like there's one particular person who you highlight in the book, uh, Paul Weyrich, who seems to understand and grasp that, who, who, as you also described, was too radical for Republicans 20 years earlier, you know, eventually becomes to, to be embraced by them. But he seems to be the guy who goes, let's weaponize the culture war. Let's right. use that. And then right. now we're sort of living in the wake of that. And it's at its at its highest point, it feels like. But yeah. so this guy was, you know. Yeah. I think his last name is pronounced Wyrick. Or Wyrick. Um, yeah, he sort of was considered not by... Uh, uh, left-wingers, but by his contemporaries as the architect of the modern culture war. So George Will, who's a famous conservative columnist and used to be on Nightline, and, you know, I think he still is on, like, you know, those Sunday morning political shows. He himself said Paul Weyrich is sort of the architect of the culture war, and they were friends, so he wasn't saying it as a put-down. But Paul Weyrich was a lecturer in the 60s with the John Birch Society, and he would go and speak at Republican groups, women's clubs and what have you. And then they would complain afterwards, why did you send this guy? He's like an extremist radical because yeah. <laughs> he's talking about abolishing public education, you know, the civil rights movement, Sakami conspiracy, tyranny is on the march, all this stuff. And um, so he was sort of rejected by Republicans. The John Birch Society in the 60s is famous as it was it was widely ridiculed it was never successful in the mainstream but it was known in the mainstream because people would always talk about it so 
folk groups like the Chad Mitchell Trio had a mm. song making fun of the John Birch Society. Mad Magazine would make fun of the John Birch Society. George Carlin, when he went solo, he had been in the comedy team. One of the first routines he ever did as a solo comic was uh, mockery of the John Birch Society. Bob Dylan had a famous song mocking the John Birch Society. Johnny Carson would crack jokes about them in his opening monologues in the 1960s. So it was sort of a laughing stock, even though it had some traction and they had a, a chain of bookstores called American Opinion Libraries, and you could get anti-civil rights literature there. And Charles Koch of the Koch brothers ran one of those bookstores when he was like 18, 19, 20 in Wichita, Kansas. His father, Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers, was a co-founder of the John Birch Society with this guy, Robert Welch, who was the guy who made Junior Mints. <laughs> so Junior Mints, the manufacturer of Junior Mints, was opposed to Martin Luther King. Paul Ryrick was a lecturer for the John Birch Society, but he was very savvy politically. He was a, a smart strategist, an evil strategist, but a smart strategist. And he could see that the John Birch Society was a laughingstock. Everybody made fun of it. So he sort of retreated to the shadows. And in 1973, with major financing from um, the Scaife Fortune, S-C-A-I-F-E, they still exist as the Sarah Scaife Foundation, one of the biggest bankrollers of uh, uh, Donald Trumpism. In 1973, with money from the Scaife family, Richard Scaife then, now Sarah Scaife, I guess it's his daughter, and uh, Coors Beer, yeah. jo Joseph Coors, they gave Paul Weyrich several million dollars and he founded something called the Heritage Foundation, which still exists to this day, which still has a tremendous influence in right-wing circles. And they basically just took the same philosophy that the John Birch Society had been pushing and rebranded it. Yeah. And yeah. they kind of got rid of the most um, m most obnoxious conspiracy theory delivery and then presented it as if it were scholarship, saying, according to our studies, according to our senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, you still hear this phrase yeah. in news all the time, so-and-so is a senior fellow at the Heritage what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Nobody in the history of watching TV has ever been received an explanation. You see people on Bill Maher's show, like even on Politically Incorrect mm -hmm. in the 90s. He's a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. Mm -hmm. What is a senior fellow? What's the Heartland mm -hmm. Institute? No explanation. Yeah, Just have to assume this is a reputable person. Yeah. Don't it's, realize that they've been campaigning against the civil rights movement for much of their life. Right. The They're from a think tank funded by the Butterfinger family. Is, and you just go, oh, okay, great, awesome. I, I guess we have to believe every word they say. Exactly. So <laughs> Paul Weirich sort of designed that. Let's take the most extremist elements, but wrap them up in this veneer of respectability and scholarship when really it's not scholarship. It's like the conclusion, black people are less intelligent than white people, is there, and then they construct a paper to try and back it up, you know. And Paul Weyrich founded multiple think tanks, generally with the same funding from the same people, that appeared to be independent of each other. Mm. So then when they would come up with an argument, and I'm just using a hypothetical, but not that far-fetched example that they might purport that black intelligence is less than white intelligence, they would have it presented by multiple different think tanks and sources and say, look, they say it, they say it, they say it, they say it. Nobody pointing out, well, how come they're all funded by the same three people and you're the same person that founded all of them? Mm -hmm. So Paul Weirich, former John Birch Society member, funds, founds the Heritage Foundation in 73, founds the Moral Majority with Jer Jerry Falwell in 1979, founded something called the Council for National Policy, which is still around today, and, and helped bolster Donald Trump in 2016, uh, helped facilitate uh, Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition in 1989, and helped create something called ALEC, the American Legislative Executive Council, which today ghostwrites legislation that is frequently anti-free speech, anti-protest bills, and they receive funding, again, from... Uh, Scaife Foundation, Charles Koch Foundation, Koch Foundation, um, and multiple other foundations. There's about 12 of them. They all work in tandem. And ALEC is uh, on the push to privatize schools, to remove public funding from public schools, transfer it to private schools. That's one of their big campaigns. 
Um, basically, they are the architects of the far right. And to not sound conspiratorial, it's not secret. Like, it's all yeah. there to yeah. learn about and read about. It's just nobody bothers to refer to it. Nobody wants to explain what a senior fellow is, what this foundation is. When there was that controversy between Neil Young and Sirius XM and Joe Rogan, it concerned this doctor that he had interviewed. That yes. This doctor who was saying, you know, this or that about COVID, he was from the Heartland Institute. I don't think it was even mentioned. The Heartland Institute was founded by Philip Morris uh, cigarettes in 1985. And what they did was recruit reputable medical people, doctors who had a reputation, who had awards and degrees, and lured them in with money, said, we'll pay you a million dollars. We want you to go on the radio shows and say there's no link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. That's what the Heartland Institute was fund founded for. In the 90s, they started to get funding from the oil industry, and they did the same thing with uh, global warming and, and would hire skeptics to go into the media, people who already had a reputation, pay them more than they were making wherever they were working to say the opposite of what they believed. And so now, most recent history, Heartland Institute was doing that with uh, COVID misinformation. But nobody points that out. It's like nobody, you know, says, so-and-so is a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. Well, what is that? Who funds that? Why was it funded? What does it do? I mean, these are simple questions, easily answered. It's not a conspiracy, but it's very easy to do the equivalent thereof when nobody bothers to uh, even look at the most basic questions. And you kind of also link, obviously, the rise of, of that sort of the culture war, thing, the, the, the link of, uh, of Weyrich as he, as he sort of rises and creates all these things with, again, back to showbiz and, and Ronald Reagan becoming president of the eight, in the 80s and, and that kind of culture that he fosters. And, and again, it just, and how he sort of, you know, supported these things. And, and it led to people who were in his wake as Ed Asner as the head of SAG, you know, and his show being canceled because he's supporting, you know, uh, anti- uh, Reagan policy abroad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if that part is totally true. Like, I, talk, I tell the story in the book by giving both points of view where people feel that Ed Asner, his TV show, Lou Grant, was canceled because of his personal politics. There are other arguments that say, well, no, it just sort of coincided with the sinking of the ratings. And there's another argument that the whole ra reason the ratings were sinking is because there was a campaign against him. Yeah. So I don't really have a... Uh, uh, distinguished conclusion to make you know I present both sides of that argument oddly I actually pay Ronald Reagan a compliment in the book I say that his detractors always insulted him by calling him a failed actor or a bad actor and I disagree I think he was a very successful actor he was on, under contract for years to Warner Brothers during the height of the studio system and he appeared in some great fucking movies you know it wasn't all just him and a monkey <laughs> you know, he also did Juke Girl, which is a great movie that people should watch. It's just a really good movie. And he, he, he did not deserve the hate for his film career, but it was so much more simple to put down Ronald Reagan for his film career rather than to go through the details of the policies, which were uh, the thing you should be criticizing. It's like when people criticize Donald Trump. What do they criticize? His spray tan, his hair? Like, it's the most superficial criticism. You can criticize the important things. It's just easier to say, oh, Ronald Reagan was a bad actor, a failed actor, bedtime for Bonzo. It's like, no, there's more important things to you. That's like the good thing about him. Right, it's, it's that the he did only a movie positive with, thing. Yeah. He did a movie with a monkey. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? But yeah, there was that correlation because the Heritage Foundation, they fir the first kind of... Um, landed on the map in 74, the year after they were founded, in a famous uh, textbook censorship case in Kanawha County, largely driven by the Ku Klux Klan locally, who were trying to suppress books that spoke posit positively of the civil rights movement that mentioned James Baldwin. They were trying to censor black history, essentially. And Not claiming, hard to draw a parallel there to modern times. Yeah, no, it was exactly the same. And, and Heritage Foundation provided um, uh, lawyers free of charge to defend these protesters that were protest protesting textbooks. And then in 1980, when Reagan got elected, they provided him with what they called the mandate for leadership, which was 
written by the Heritage Foundation and all their former birchers of policies they wanted Reagan to implement. And this is sort of like ALEC today. They make it easy for a legislature uh, to just read this uh, ghost-written legislation rather than have to write it themselves and just rubber stamp it. It's written by lobbyists who funded their political campaign anyways. They got elected. Now they pay it forward, pay it back by implementing this ghost-written legislation. And they kind of got annoyed with Reagan because he did not implement everything they wanted. They wanted to, you know, uh, eliminate Social Security, and he didn't do it, and it really annoyed them. And so some of the funders started to put more money into other think tanks to sort of expand this sort of um, uh, influence so they wouldn't have to be reliant just on one politician alone. But anyways, it's it, it sounds boring when I talk about it, but <laughs> I tried to make it entertaining in the book itself. Absolutely, and and uh, you include enough showbiz and great stuff. I mean, I, I, I the book I, is yeah. about show business. The culture wars are inherently political. <laughs> yes, yeah, they um, intersect. Is the reality? Also, yeah. I'm not American, so I actually don't give a fuck as much. <laughs> yeah, you're Canadian. This isn't your politics. You yeah, know, I, I mean... don't really care. I mean, I, I do care, but it's not up to me to solve. You know, I can't solve it. You know, even if I were involved in a protest movement. If I got arrested in a mass arrest, you know, you see uh, sit-in protesters in like a congressman's office or something like that, that's all in fine. Somebody's American, they get arrested, they get charged, they get released. That doesn't happen with me. If I get arrested, I get deported, I get my uh, working papers revoked, I'm not allowed to ever come back. So I got a little more to lose. So I prefer to just write, provide people with the knowledge and information, and then they can go do the actual political actions sometimes we require an outsider's uh, perspective on these things i think is uh, well you know. know the best movies about los angeles are all like foreign filmmakers exactly. you know Ch- chinatown by roman polanski yeah zabriskie you know. point and uh there's a movie called the outside man that's a french film from 72 and uh for, for some reason people from outside of america frequently have the best perspective about america yeah they can understand what's so uh, ridiculous about what it is we're doing here well sometimes <laughs> the ridiculous stuff is obvious right yes, you know yeah. everybody else in the world has health care and they're not upset about it and even in canada right wingers support universal health care they would never ever run a political campaign with the pledge to repeal it they would get zero votes you yes. know so <laughs> include one reagan story that i uh, just even an anecdote of uh he would clean his contact lenses by sucking on them is uh, after dinner okay my 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 <laughs> publisher didn't want us to put this in there because he goes what the fuck does that have to do with anything in the book and i go it's nothing weird. but it's such a weird funny story <laughs> it was not in a political book it was in a, a book by a woman named uh sheila graham sheila graham was a hollywood gossip columnist like hedda hopper or luella mm. parsons and she wrote a book called Hollywood Confessions, and it's just about her career and all the movie stars she knew and talks about Errol Flynn and Shirley Temple. And she talks about Ronald Reagan, and she says, when I first met Ronnie, he was dating Nancy, and they were at Sardi's, and in the middle of the meal, Ronnie took his contact lenses out, put them in his mouth, sucked on them, and then put them back in his eyes. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. It was just such a ridiculous, stupid, has nothing to do with anything. So when I was writing this little section about Ronald Reagan, you know, I have notes on my computer. If I read a book and there's some weird anecdote about show business, I just transcribe it, source it, and maybe one day it'll find a place into my work somewhere. And so I did a search on my file for like Ronald Reagan when I was doing that section. I was like, oh yeah, that anecdote. So I put it in there. And then I get this note from my editor like a few months ago, it's all red circled around there. He goes, this is weird. But why? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, why do we need it? And I, I go, well, I'd like to keep it. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with furthering the story. You know, every anecdote should further the theme of the book. But that one is just totally on its own. But I just, I don't know. It's just funny to me. It's too weird not to put in. on, And, and you can tell him I loved it. It's, I will hold on to it forever now. It's, it's completely what a great story. Ap- apolitical. Like, yeah, it really yeah. has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> I guess you could construe it as being anti-Reagan in a way, but I think the way Sheila Graham told it, it wasn't supposed to be political. And I did intentionally put it directly below the compliment 
of saying that he made some pretty good movies. You gotta see Juke Girl starring yeah, Ronald Reagan. I, hey, Great uh, movie. Putting it on the list. Okay, that sounds good. You can kind of see how cyclical this whole, na- the nature of all this is. And uh, is there anything, to, it, what can we learn from that, that, that it's cyclical? Just that we need to, how, how can we break this cycle? Is there any way from, I mean, and not to say you have to solve this problem, but do you have any thoughts on that? Is it just returning to satirizing the people on the top or, or finding a way to get corporate money out of politics. The best way would be to purchase a new book called Outrageous, Showbiz and the Culture Wars That's by right. Cliff Nesteroff. You can get it at Skylight Books in person. You can order it online. You can come to one of the events live that Skylight will be uh, sponsoring at Dynasty Typewriter Theater on December 4th. Um, that is definitely the best way top to combat all this to get the top book. Of the list. It's very, very difficult because how do we combat it? Uh, I don't know, but uh, all I can do to combat it is provide uh, knowledge and evidence that people could then use to try and combat ignorance to the best of their ability. Well, and, and I'll just, to, to kind of wrap up, I think you end on such an interesting note, uh, the book, where you get into the, the controversy that surrounds the, the Dixie Chicks, uh, now known as the Chicks, because of their uh, willingness to go against the Iraq War and, and criticize President Bush, and, and they're immediately sort of shouted down, and the internet is mobilized against them, which just, like, as you leave the book, it's like, almost feels ominous knowing the next 20 years and the role that the internet begins to play, mm-hmm. and you know what just what was your decision to end there and and just sort of leave it off for people to know and this is where the internet takes it basically i really don't like to write about uh, modern times for mm. i just i'm not that good at it you know i frequently get asked to write about modern comedy but there's other people that do that it's really not my specialty and it's hard to have perspective about anything when you're living in it for whatever reason perspective is all about looking at the past so ending on the Dixie Chicks, there's a quote from um, their manager saying, you know, the scary thing is, and this is before Facebook, he's he's talking about AOL online. I think those free discs that used to get that said, 40 free hours of internet, and you'd see like a hundred of them in the fucking gutter of an alley, (laughs) discarded. Um, He was saying that, you know, the the scary thing about the internet is that now um, people can gain traction in some sort of hysteria and mobilize against you know people in real life you know i'm paraphrasing completely but so yeah it is supposed to leave you with the thought of that is like now look at what's happened now um i don't like writing about the present i find it sort of boring to do so Mm -hmm. i definitely don't like writing about the internet (laughs) it feels like writing about writing you know just not interesting and also we all know what's happening now we all know what the last 10 years looked like but there are grown adults who were not uh, cognizant in 2003 you know there are people that are uh, about to turn 20 years old that were born at that time so i want to provide information about things that people don't know rather than focus on things we already know and that is sort of is the crux of this book is finding all the anecdotes that you'll find interesting that you'll find funny that you'll find entertaining that you'll find analogous but that you didn't know. And all three of my books, is that really is the purpose, is to elevate uh, things that are true, but completely uncommon knowledge. And I think uh, uh, this book only furthers to succeed at that. And I would say it's it's enlightening, it's it's fascinating, you find these anecdotes, and, and also you you are yourself a very, very funny writer, and I, and I appreciate that as well. Yeah, uh, it I makes mean, the we medicine were, go down we a little easier. terribly unfunny during the podcast. We were funnier before we started recording. <laughs> <coughs> Yo, but, uh, hilarious, unbelievable, <laughs> cutting it there up. There are blurbs on the back cover. <laughs> Steve Martin and Bob Odenkirk both say that the book is funny, so please... If you're uh, if you're skeptical of picking up a book that sounds super heavy and depressing, it's not. It's mostly people talking about how Carol Burnett is the immoral downfall of America. So please get the book. You'll enjoy it. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's not depressing. 
and you can learn about Ronald Reagan sucking on his uh, <laughs> contact lenses in the middle of dinner and then putting them back in his eyes. A hundred percent. And that it is comforting to know that this has been happening and it continues to happen. And again, the world has not ended, that we have not spun off our axis. Culture has not come to an end as we know it. Things that we will move forward. There will always be comedy. There will always be funny people. And I think there is there is comfort to be getting there. All, there will always be comedy. The world has always been shit. Yeah. And uh, you got to find the, the, the sunshine in the shit. Is that a that feels metaphor? Good. Uh, I like that. Yeah. That's in this. <laughs> the sunshine in the shit. I think it's a John Denver song. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, you know, now that uh, we've, we've reached this point, I'll say again, come to Skylight Books. It's, it's going to be uh, uh, in our arts annex, 1814 North Vermont. Come buy the book. It's coming out November 28th. 28th. Come pick it up right the day that it opens. Pre-Christmas sales, man. It, buy it for uh, your your uncles, your, your dads, all the people who think that they just can't say anything anymore. Let them know that that's not true, that it's never been true. Uh, and uh, join us next time. Thanks so much for being here, Cliff. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time.